I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. This episode is a special one for me. It marks the three-year anniversary of this podcast. And over those years, I've learned an incredible amount from the guests on the show. But a constant worry for me, something I just can't shake, is my own susceptibility to confirmation bias. Because frankly, it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid when you're interviewing great people in the sustainability field. Now, all of this is to say that I want to kick off this year with something different. I want to be constructively challenged with a dispassionate, hard-nosed take on the world of ESG investing. And so I reached out to Professor Campbell Harvey for the explicit reason that he isn't an ESG-focused academic. Instead, he's one of the leading academics in quantitative finance. With over 125 published papers, Cam is perhaps best known for conceiving the inverted yield curve, an indicator that's predicted the past eight recessions without a false signal, and the last four recessions on an out-of-sample basis. In other words, he's a quant quant, whose research spans investment finance, emerging markets, corporate finance, behavioral finance, financial econometrics, Bitcoin, and even the fundamental notion of statistical evidence in financial economics. So there's an incredible amount to take away from this episode. We discuss why purported claims around ESG outperformance are perhaps misguided, how the academic world is grappling with statistical evidence, and what makes climate change as a systemic risk so compelling for future research. We also talk about the existence of risk premia in this area, and what all this means in terms of creating credible ESG investment products. Cam is Professor of Finance at the Fuqua School of Business, Duke University, and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's a fellow of the American Finance Association, serving as its president in 2016. Cam received the 2016 and 2015 Best Paper Awards from the Journal of Portfolio Management for his research on distinguishing luck from skill, a topic we'll discuss in this episode. From 2006 to 2012, he edited the Journal of Finance, the leading scientific journal in his field and one of the premier journals in the economic profession. Cam serves as an investment strategy advisor to Man Group, and it's worth mentioning that he was just named Quant of the Year by the Journal of Portfolio Management for his outstanding contributions to the field of quantitative portfolio theory. Welcome to the podcast, Cam Harvey. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me back to the podcast, Jason. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I do want to highlight that you're the first person who's been on this podcast twice, which is great. And so for those who want to listen to that first episode, it's episode seven, where Cam and I discuss the social value of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, uh, an area that certainly has attracted a lot of attention over 2020. So now, We've got a different topic and a lot to talk about. So let's open it up with a big picture question. Cam, if you look at the world of ESG investing through the lens of quantitative finance, frankly, what's interesting and potentially applicable and what's problematic? Well, it is very interesting and very challenging as an academic because we've got a demand 
for product that is ESG compliant, but the problem has to do with the definitions. And ESG, of course, combines so many different things. And each category provides different types of challenges for the academic. The E is probably the cleanest sort of category to do research in, the more environmental types of issues. But when you go to the S, the social aspect, and G, the governance, it's much more dispersed. And it's really people disagree upon measures of governance and different social initiatives. It is really like an entanglement that you get into doing this research. So another way of looking at this is from a risk angle. And I think of the E as more of a, a systemic risk. And what I mean by that is that in particular with climate, there is a real scenario where there's a catastrophic event and the earth uh, kind of devolves into a place that is not a great place to live overall. That is a systemic risk. Whereas the social aspect and the governance aspect, that's a different category. So again, it makes it really difficult to conduct research when people disagree upon the basic definitions of the categories. So you can see that this is a real challenge. If you do ESG research, where does it fit in, in terms of the spectrum of different choices that you have to make in terms of uh, the definitions of these categories? Is it a noise problem or a data problem or sort of a definitional sort of interpretational problem? Is it just the lack of maturity of the industry? So it's everything that you just mentioned. So I would say like noise definitely plays a role. And what do I mean by that? Let's say that we want to measure the ESG compliance of a particular company. Well, that's really hard to do if you're not decided upon definitions. So we've got many companies out there that are providing ratings for different firms, but the problem is that the methodologies are different. We don't know what the correct methodology actually is. And the sort of difference in the ratings, you could actually refer to as noise. There's another aspect to this, and that is that there's just not that much history in terms of the data that's available. So it makes it really difficult to use quantitative tools uh, to make some progress in this particular area. You know, as you said, the advantage of the environmental, the E factor, or the climate factor is that it's systemic. What do you think are the implications in terms of integrating that E into portfolios? I ask because it seems like much of investor focus these days is spent on minimizing exposure to the biggest carbon emitters or the biggest polluters. But like you said, a risk-based view kind of takes the position that all companies could be adversely impacted by these environmental risks, regardless of their individual emissions contribution. Yes. Yeah, so as I said earlier, the E, I think, is the cleanest in terms of definitional. And, and most people are uh, first order interested in reducing the carbon footprint of their portfolio. So the sort of data that we have still is noisy. And a number of choices need to be made when you actually 
measure the carbon output of a company because it really depends upon what they actually produce, not just the the inputs uh, to the production. That is definitely the cleanest in terms of definition, and that's where most of the demand actually is. And people realize that this is something that can be done. So most of the focus, I would say, in the ESG space in terms of asset management has to do with designing portfolios that have a lower carbon footprint. Got it. I want to come back to the data side, but I mean, one thing that sort of strikes me as unusual is that we've had some academics already on this series, Alex Edmonds, uh, who you know, um, Bob Litterman, who's not you know, albeit an academic, but he's written some some very strong white papers on climate risk. But I guess the question I wonder is, why isn't there more academic research in this area, given the importance, not just to investors, but to policymakers as well? I mean, do you find, you know, is there pressure in academics to come up with, you know, I'm doing air quotes, the right conclusion in this sensitive area, rather than one where, for instance, polluting actually enhances shareholder returns or greater diversity actually hurts returns? Is the politicization of this problematic? Yes, it is, but it's not the main reason that we have relatively low number of uh, papers in financial economics and economics in general on these issues. The main problem has to do with the lack of data. So if you're conducting empirical work to have any reasonable quantitative inference, you need a long sample of data. And the sort of data vendors in the ESG space, the data is not that long. So in terms of the carbon sort of ratings, we're talking maybe, maybe we have 10 years. And that early data is not that high quality. So it's it's a lot to ask for to embark on research where uh, it's really difficult to draw any conclusions from the data because there's just not enough of it. So that's that's one aspect. The second aspect, even conditional on the data, that the data are noisy, as uh, I mentioned earlier. So you get different vendors with different sort of ratings for, for companies. So it makes it even more difficult to try to interpret it. And, and number three, these data, uh, they're not cheap. So when I began my career, essentially it was a a level playing field where all of the universities had access to the basic data to conduct empirical work. Now these databases are highly specialized and and expensive. So you put those uh, three things together and it's a difficult sort of uh, space to operate in. There's another aspect that's linked to what I've said that is a real challenge. And that is that, especially in the climate space, we're talking about something that's slow moving and affects the the future. And the future's not next month. It's not next year. It might even not be next decade. So anytime you're doing research that uh, is kind of long-term, in foundation, it makes it even more challenging to draw conclusions. So those are the main reasons that I think it's really difficult or challenging for academics to jump into this space. Now, there's a lot of research already, given what we've got. 
the other aspect that you mentioned is the political aspect. And yes, I actually do believe that we see this, that you can write a paper, you can draw some uh, conclusions from the data, and then you're potentially shamed on social media as a result. For me, again, this is a, a different world where it, it used to be that you put a paper together, you present it in front of your colleagues, and you get feedback. And it could be very negative feedback, but it's within the sort of process that we call conversation or peer review, and that helps you improve the paper. But now uh, I've got papers that the abstract is posted online and then uh, people start to criticize you without reading the paper, just basically reading what other people say or, or just the abstract. So, so it is a different world. And I do think at the margin, this really influences the research choices that, that people make as, as academics and the way that they interpret the data because of the sort of political environment uh, today. And I want to be very clear that this kind of, in my opinion, does interfere with the, the process of generating research and disseminating it. But I also want to emphasize that it is sometimes the case that you get really bad research and that needs to be called out and that needs to be called out in many different forms, and it could be in social media forms. So I want to play that last point into a kind of a big question, because over this past year, particularly from the outset of the pandemic, we've seen widespread claims around the outperformance of ESG investment strategies, whether it's indices or, or discretionary funds, there have been a lot of them. And I'm, I'm just wondering, as an academic, how do you rationalize these claims, especially in, in, your, in the light of your work around skill versus luck among mutual fund returns. I guess in, in another way of asking it, you know, it is, at least for this year, is the market rewarding better managed, better governed companies with valuation premiums? Or is this simply capital flows and crowding effects at work? Are ESG investors finally being rewarded for their skill? Or frankly, are they just lucky? So it's, it's more complex. So the simple answer to your question is it's marketing. And it's very disturbing because we already know that investors are seeking product that is ESG friendly. We already know that. So there's a rush to deliver something to the market that checks the box. And I see these claims of, oh, well, we provided ESG alpha. You see this all over the place, ESG alpha. So you invest with this product, we're going to outperform. And oh yeah, look at the evidence. In 2020, we beat whatever metric that's chosen as a, as a benchmark. So the way I look at that and, and what you say about luck could play a role, but I, th I think what you, you mentioned in terms of crowding plays an even more important role. And that is that investors pour money into stocks or products that they consider to be ESG compliant. And that drives prices up, as you would expect. It's basic supply and demand. And the problem here is that it looks like alpha. 
So it looks like you've outperformed in the past. But what investors should care about is the return going forward. So we don't necessarily care as much about what happened in 2020. We want to know what's going to happen in 2021 and beyond. And this is a really common mistake that investors make. They take a look at what happened in 2019 or 2020. Oh, that looks really good. I'm going to buy. And essentially what you're doing is you're buying at an elevated price. And when you do that, the expected return going forward is actually lower. So it, it could be zero. It could be negative. So this is what I really worry about in the space, that people are advertising this ESG alpha and then pointing to a year of evidence where there were substantial flows into these companies that are ESG friendly. That's driven the price up. But at the same time, given the high price, the expected return is low or negative. So, so that's... That's the issue, and investors beware. Anytime you buy high, you kind of go against the usual investing principle where you like to buy low and sell high. This, to me, seems a bit of the opposite. Yeah. I mean, how would you even go about picking out skill in this area when, you know, like you said earlier, there's so much widespread disagreement about what it actually represents? I think the issue I've always had, and obviously I'm supportive of the space, but you know, for, for people sort of claiming to have ESG performance, if you were to say, well, you know, show me the evidence. I mean, there's, there's no Brinson attribution analysis that kind of breaks out ESG in a clean category, like any other common risk factors. What you tend to get almost always is a narrative. You, you get, you know, in the appendix, three or four case studies, always cherry picked that describe a minority of the portfolio. And you, you effectively, you get anecdote rather than attribution, you know, performance attribution. And so, you know, with, without even having a factor by which to measure it, I'm sort of wondering how you can make that claim outside of just a, a narrative reporting perspective. No, you're correct. This is like really difficult to do when you don't have that much data. And then when, as you say, you don't really have a factor, right? So we've got other factors that we can have some agreement upon, like illiquidity or a market factor, size factor, things like that, where we can tangibly do this sort of decomposition. But for ESG, we just don't have anything like that that's at least agreed upon. So it's really difficult to do any type of attribution. The easiest thing that people usually do is just look at the carbon footprint of a particular portfolio and basically argue their portfolio's got a lower carbon footprint and it is done better than whatever benchmark you're comparing it to. And of course, you choose the benchmark that's most convenient uh, for you. So the benchmark where you look the best, that's your benchmark. And then you claim that you've got skill. And again, it's really difficult for somebody in quantitative finance like myself to put much weight upon that. There's not much data. It could be lucky. It could be because of the crowding of investors into that space. So it's basically, as I say, this marketing. And that's not what you want. Yeah. I mean, is there a worry then that, that sort of investors 
effectively just conflate a lot of different factors into something called ESG. You know, the anecdote I always think of is about a year ago before the lockdown, I was at a conference and someone said, quality is the new ESG. <laughs> I'm not a quant, but even I was offended. But, but I feel like that's kind of the thinking of absent the existence of some uncorrelated ESG factor. So it's interesting you mentioned quality. Now, obviously, quality is within the group, in particular, the G group of the ESG. But you know that I've studied hundreds of these factors uh, in terms of my research. And quality, in terms of the way that it's formed, is one of these factors that it's just not obvious what quality actually is. So it could be dozens of different inputs that actually go in. And when you look at those different inputs that go into a quality measure, they're remarkably uncorrelated. So you get this possibility that you're calling something quality that actually is very unrelated to somebody else's version of what quality is. It's true for other factors like value, that there's different ways to define value. But if you look at those different ways, they're all highly correlated. Mm. Whereas with quality, they're uncorrelated or relatively low correlation. So again, this is the same thing we talked about earlier, that there's no kind of agreed upon definition of what quality is. There's no agreed upon definition of what the E, the S, or the G is. And there's obviously no agreed upon definition when you put everything together as ESG and no sort of risk factor that we could kind of use in terms of attribution. I mean, for anyone, by the way, who's, who's sort of interested to the paper that, that Cam had just mentioned, it's called The Census of the Factor Zoo, which is a phenomenal paper that looks at over 400 factors over the last 50 years. Just fascinating. What does that mean, uh, even conceptually, about sort of the existence of risk premium, uh, premia in this space? Do you think, is it a climate risk premium? You know, it sounds like you're not convinced from an ESG kind of composite risk premium. Do you think premia exists in this space? I do. And the way I look at it, the easiest way to look at this is in terms of uh, the components of ESG. So you can think of, let's say, climate risk as, as an example, that companies have different exposures to that type of risk. And the more exposure that you've got, the higher the expected return should be. So the price is, is basically depressed by that exposure because you're taking on this extra risk. So a way to think about it is that if there is a climate realization, those firms become very risky when they have a large exposure uh, to climate. And, and I believe that that is the type of risk that is rewarded by investors. It's just really difficult uh, to measure. Yeah. I mean, if what would you need to start to be kind of convinced that something exists, uh, let's say outside the climate risk premium area. You know, if you've got something that works across regions, that works moderately across asset classes, which is a big ask, but w w over what time series would you need, you know, three or four economic cycles worth of data versus the 10 years that you mentioned? So there are dozens, if not hundreds of papers in academic finance that look at components of, especially the G, a factor 
and you know what is good corporate governance and they develop a measure and then they do analysis of firms seeing if there's a difference and in returns depending upon your exposure to these sort of definition or components of the g and and this research is generally uh, well done but you do run into this issue that when you're trying so many things trying to see if there's a relationship between a component of governance and and future returns it's really sometimes like a a data mining expedition and we need to be really careful in interpreting uh, these results so it might be that the results look significant it might be that there's an aggressive interpretation of the results but we need to be really careful with just so many choices i've mentioned that there's so many definitions of all of these components if you try enough of these different definitions then you're going to find something that appears to work and and it does work in the historical data but then when you put it as a basis for an investment product you offer it to investors you go into uh, live trading it disappoints so we need to be really careful in terms of using this research for the basis of investment uh, strategies yeah is is there any other you know through your vast work around other factors is there any other sort of parallel to, to something in this space that maybe started out challenged because of a lack of historical data but actually sort of proved itself in out of sample data so one of the issues with finance in general and this is not just academic finance but the practice of finance is that there's so much noise in stock returns so we we talk about the kind of signal to noise ratio in science and in many fields that ratio is high in finance the ratio is very low so that is the reason that for essentially the last 50 years we haven't been able to come up with totally agreed upon way to figure out what the expected return should be a uh, conditional on risk exposure for an asset it's kind of a basic thing that you need to know so if you're designing a portfolio you need to know a number of things for example you need to know what the expected return is that's not going to be the realized return but just an expected return and we kind of know that stocks have a higher expected return than let's say treasury bills we kind of know that but i'm talking about across the different stocks what is the expected return we need to know basic things like what is the risk and then we need to know something about the co movement of these individual assets and it turns out that we have no agreed upon method for those three inputs and as a result it's really difficult to make a recommendation and and people that claim that they know exactly how to do this that they will design your portfolio in an optimal way and I'll I'll put uh, quotations air quotes around uh, the word optimal they're just misleading you again it's just marketing so it's really difficult in my field in general uh, to make inference that is definitive and are partially definitive and it's even more challenging when we go to an area like ESG 
where there's much less data, there's disagreement over basic definitions. It's really, really difficult to say much. And again, I think the the sort of most straightforward sort of metric would be in the e-space where you've got some measure of carbon footprint. How do you think about this in a temporal aspect? Because you've you'd mentioned the long term and the short term. You know, the prevailing view now is that ESG, and it has been, is that ESG is about the long term risks like climate change. Absolutely true. Not necessarily short term catalysts and events. You find that investor preferences in this area and you know, effectively the materiality of the data as well. But I guess you're finding new data sets, faster moving, you know, tag news feeds, or you're finding social media combined with tools like natural language processing or machine learning and AI, and in some ways sort of pulling forward the investment horizon to act more as short-term sentiment indicators in a sense. And, and I'm wondering, you know, how, how do you see those tools and those data sets and, and those two horizons sort of coexisting? That's a great question and the subject of another podcast, <laughs> but let me try to make a, a little bit of progress on this. So number one, I think that we need to take a step back and realize that we've had a massive failure of markets. So it shouldn't be that somebody, a company is polluting and not paying any compensation for it. So it's called an economics, a public goods uh, problem, where essentially what you're doing, even though it might be profitable to you, it actually is harming others. So we've got a basic failure in terms of our markets because that negative externality where I've got, let's say I, I start to burn trash on my property and that affects my neighbors. I shouldn't be able to do that because I'm, I'm basically causing harm uh, to my neighbors. But in today's markets, we do have some regulations, but just not good enough, especially in terms of what's happening with carbon. There's little disagreement that the sort of carbon footprint is an issue that is linked clearly to climate change. So the markets have failed in this respect. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how do we think of this in terms of investment? And this is where it's really important to think not just of kind of the short term, but the longer term or the medium term horizon as investors. So it is reasonable to think about a long term alpha. And this is what I kind of mean by that. So it's reasonable to take a perspective that carbon will be much more regulated in the future. And you combine that with technological change that a number of the firms that are valuable today are not going to be valuable in the future. So essentially what I'm saying is that people in the market today have not properly taken into account both the technological change and the change in the regulatory environment. And that provides an opportunity for investors. And essentially, they can design a portfolio to underweight these companies that are at great risk in terms of both the regulatory environment and technological change. So we see this a little bit in terms of oil and gas and things like that, where that's being underweighted. And I certainly am of the opinion, given my research on commodities, 
that, and this is not a short sample, this is a sample of hundreds of years, so centuries of data, that if you look at the real return on commodities in the long term, it is generally negative. And the reason is technological change. So you think about in the agricultural sector, just how much more efficient we are today in terms of producing food. In 1900, almost half of the U.S. population was in the agricultural sector. And today, it's like 1.5%. We produce much more, and the quality is much higher. So that is technological change in terms of irrigation, in terms of seed management, fertilizers, pesticide, all this stuff is increased yields. And this is not just agriculture, but other commodities, very similar. And you think about oil, it fits into the same sort of narrative that what do you really think the price of a barrel of oil will be in like 15 years? Hmm. In today's dollars, maybe $5, maybe it's just kind of obvious to me that technological change will basically allow for another technology that's much more efficient to replace this sort of legacy technology. So if you're taking kind of a longer term view, then there are some possibilities here. But this, again, your return might not be realized in the first year, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, but this is a longer term perspective that you need to take. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering too, how do you balance the assumption around technology change with, we've talked about this before, this idea that there will be a climate Minsky moment, you know, the UNPRI would say an inevitable policy response, the, the point in which climate related damage becomes so much that, that governments, you know, knee jerk respond and implement, you know, a carbon market or a carbon tax. And suddenly you find a categorical repricing of, of carbon intensive assets. Yeah. So again, that, that is a, a risk realization and different companies have different exposures to that risk. So I think we can actually do a reasonable job of measuring that. And those companies that are affected, there will be obviously a loss of value when that Minsky moment actually arises. And that is rewarded. So the expected returns that they have should be higher to get people to actually buy those uh, securities. The expected returns have to be higher, but just beware they're higher because there's severe downside risk. I guess I'm trying to sort of sum this up and, and I'm wondering what all this means. I want to go back to this point of what it means to investment managers when they go about creating products. If you put aside commodities for a second, particularly given there's so much scrutiny around greenwashing um, and sort of ESG credentials, particularly in Europe um, from a regulatory perspective. Yeah. It feels like you've called this out in academics where there's this temptation within academic research to data mine and create a a narrative around in-sample results while ignoring the out-of-sample results. You know, likewise, managers would seem to be particularly vulnerable to this temptation because there's an obvious agency problem. They want to raise AUM. Yeah. So you're exactly right. So you can imagine somebody giving orders to a researcher within a firm, find me something that is somehow ESG friendly with the highest possible back-tested uh, return. And the researcher goes and they've got lots of possibilities. So they've got different measures of E, S, and G. 
They've got many different choices that they can make. They can choose how far back in time they actually go. They can uh, exclude certain companies. There's so many choices that it is just so easy to come up with something that beats the market or beats the benchmark. And then that's packaged and, and sold to investors as a product that's not just ESG friendly, but can beat the market. And that's very disturbing to me. And it's exactly my research program where I've called things out like this. Uh, this is just a matter of data mining and overfitting your back test. What I prefer is something that is much more transparent, where we don't really agree upon all of the risk factors, but let's say we choose maybe five of the most popular uh, factors. We design a portfolio that has similar exposure to those factors than, let's say, a market portfolio in general, but has a lower carbon footprint. And given it's got similar exposures, the expected return is the same. So you basically say, well, here I can, I can do something that has got like a lower carbon footprint but should have, at least over the short term, about the same expected return as the market. So what I'm saying is probably a marketing pitch that I would look at is where the manager is fully transparent in terms of all the choices that they've made, and they're making no outlandish claims about ESG alpha. I'm fine with uh, an alpha of zero with the same exposure to whatever benchmark that I consider important. So if I've got a choice between investing in X that's got a certain expected return, then I can also entertain Y, which has similar assets, the same expected return, but has a lower carbon footprint. And potentially there is a bonus in the long term if there is a risk realization and it turns out that you know, certain stocks have been overvalued that you're not exposed to, that would be good. And you would realize in the longer term, some alpha in the shorter term, it looks like a regular investment. So for the final question, I wanted to stray a little bit from what we've been talking about and this is something that you've spent some time thinking about, which is what's the argument for going to Mars? Do we need not just a <laughs> plan B, but... Uh, effectively a planet B? Because, I mean, the skeptics would say that, you know, it carries significant upfront costs with no economic benefits for at least several generations. So the story that Elon Musk uh, spins is that we need a backup. And the idea is that if there's no intervention, if we stay on the course that we're staying on, then Earth basically is transformed into a Mars-like environment. So that is kind of the systemic risk realization. Systemic risks are you know, things like an asteroid strike on the planet or an all-out nuclear war, or with climate basically causing the Earth to become like a, a desert. So that's the story. But I do think that we need to take into account the role of technological change. So we potentially will have the technology to do the carbon capture, to do widespread desalination, to have much more efficient batteries and things like that. So we do have this possibility. However, and this is not really that well understood, 
Remember, I've been talking about the lack of data in finance in particular. Well, in climate research, there's really no lack of data, though most of the data is usually like 150 years of cleanly captured data. The long data has to do with ice core sample. So these samples could be hundreds of thousands of years. And every layer of the ice can tell you what the climate was, what the bubbles can tell you what the CO2 was. And, and that research really doesn't get that much play. And I think I know the reason why. The reason why is the following, that there is a clear relation between increased carbon and climate. So that's in these data. However, the data also shows the sort of adjustment times. So when you reduce the carbon, how long does it take for the climate to recover? And the lag is very, very long. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of discouraging. So, so the argument for the backup, I think, really depends upon that. Yeah, we'll have a lot of uh, technology available, but have we gone past the point where it's going to be easy to get back to where we were? That's the argument for actually doing this. And I think the other argument is if we invest in these types of technologies to go to different planets, I think that there are residual benefits that, that will occur both for other areas of science and the economy in general. So my opinion is that I'm all for the science of uh, technological change. I do think that given the path of technological change right now, that we can solve this problem. What I worry about is whether we've kind of gone so far that it's going to be really challenging for civilization over the next century. And that, of course, is not really priced into our capital markets. Hmm. It's a provocative and, and very sobering question. So Look, this, this has been fantastic. It's, uh, it's been fascinating to discuss what's interesting and problematic about ESG investing in the context of quantitative finance, how recent claims around ESG performance and alpha are perhaps misguided, and why practitioners and academics need to dedicate much more research and resources towards understanding climate change as a systemic risk. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Cam Harvey, professor of finance at the Fuqua School of Business, Duke University. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Cam. This has been great. Thank you, Jason, for having me on the podcast. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash RI podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.